If you know me, you know I love food, but one of the things I love about food is the science of food. I love the whole process that's involved with taking something and turning it into something which is of both maximal use and aesthetic pleasure and sheer delight and communal experience. I'm learning so much from different people around the world about how you can do learning in different contexts and bring that into a school environment. Scott Pickett is a person who I really want to learn a lot from. He is one of Australia's top chefs. He's one of Australia's top business people. He's a really authentic and sincere person. He is not just a snack master. He is a fine dining, chef's hatted entrepreneur and cultivator of innovative design and Australian products and everything else there. I'm really excited. I can't wait. Let's go. Before you start your conversation with today's Game Changers special series guest, Phil, can you share with our audience a little bit about our Series 9 sponsor? Of course, Adriano. A School for Tomorrow is a globally recognised network that supports students, educators, school leaders and their communities to thrive in the new world environment. Their Circle Global School Research Program continues to design and run large international collaborative research projects that improve outcomes, strengthen culture, and support the people in schools who are serving the rapidly changing world of their own communities. To find out more about how you can come on this journey, you can visit the link in the description or contact their client associate, Kyle, at kyle at circle.education. That's kyle, K-Y-L-E, at circle.education. Let's go. G'day, Scott. How are you doing today? Yeah, good. Thanks, Phil. And yourself, how are you going, mate? Yeah, not too bad for an old bloke here in uh, here in the People's Democratic Republic of Fitzroy. I had to go out <laughs> onto the streets and uh, brave the uh, the tofu and kale and uh, organic oat milk that was being thrown at me left, right and centre around here. Um, yeah, all the vegetarian delights. Yeah, that's it. Or Vegemites, as my, uh, as my good mate Georgina would call them. Um, Scott, I'm really interested in how a country boy from Kangaroo in South Australia ended up in Melbourne and in Victoria and started his way forward. I wonder if you can tell me your earliest memories of food. My earliest memories of food. So there's two early memories of life, actually. So I'm actually born in Melbourne. I'm a Victorian boy and my father is from Adelaide. So the reason we ended up there is when we were about 12, um, we went there on holidays and we bought a property in Kangaroo when we were on sort of holidays because I was in year seven, year eight, uh, and I thought it would be a good time to kind of move over. So my dad's family's there, and I moved back to Melbourne when I was 19, but I'll get to that later anyway. So, like, I'm kind of a big V. I lived there for a long time, then came back. But my first two earlys, my first two memories of life are actually one, he's standing in Windy Hill on a milk crate, um, in 1979, watching the mighty Bombers play, Paul Vanderhaar run around. So with my grandmother, um, Audrey, that actually lived in a block of flats across the road. And my other one is a big bratwurst at the Queen Victoria Markets that my old man used to love and would go there most Saturday mornings or Sundays for a big dirty sausage. And uh, they're my first two memories of life. So footy and hot dogs, really, I suppose. Look, I can I can get with the hot dogs thing as 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 our regular listeners will know. I know absolutely nothing about AFL being a 
an avid Waratah supporter all my life. Um, yep. uh, are the Bombers any good at winning? Uh, they were in those days, in the 80s and 90s, were probably our glory years through till about 2000. So um, as a kid, um, I went to three or four grand finals. We won a couple, you know, although probably it was normal for the Bombers to be a top team. The last 15, 20 years, not so much, but we're coming back the last couple. Well, look, that's that's good to hear. Um, the, the Waratahs won the uh, Super Rugby once, but I think that was a mistake. Um, uh, we're, we're very, very good at, at giving people character because yeah. you just find yourself growing further and further in character as you get older and older, <laughs> wondering how you could possibly lose from the situations we find ourselves in. You're the sort of person who loves life and yeah. brings a love of life to people. Was that was that was family life like that for you when you were younger? Was it a was it a, a rollicking experience? Was there? It was always like that. I mean, look, I'm. A, I'm very lucky in many ways. Uh, I've got great support from my family. Um, you know, we had a really good upbringing. We were on the farm for many years, for about seven or eight years. I was there uh, before I moved back to Melbourne when I completed my apprenticeship. But I started cooking in Adelaide. And, and you know, growing up on a small property, we had dirt bikes. You know, we had lots of fun. We'd hit the golf ball around the paddocks, you know. But we had chickens. We had ducks. We had cows. We had five acres of vines, we had a veggie patch. And so food was always an important part of our life. But even before we moved to South Australia, every Wednesday night, we would go to visit my grandmother and Sunday. So we always had a Sunday roast with her and Audrey's, you know, famous roast, um, you know, was a roast, was a roast leg of lamb with all the trimming. And then Wednesday nights would always do something a little bit well, lighter, but it might be corned beef or it might be a stew or it might be something like that. Yeah. So there was always that connection with food and she had a little veggie patch and a little flat as well too, growing rhubarb that she'd stew and, and you know, vegetables out the back and stuff. So it was always something that was around me. Um, and I think very early on, I kind of realised that whole, and it's a little bit corny now, but the whole paddock to plate, I understood you know, the time and effort in rearing a duck and then getting a duck to a stage to get then get it prepared for the table and then we'd enjoy it, you know, whether it be a chicken or some of our, like our homegrown beef, you know. So so what did he have on the farm? So we had uh, we had black Angus on the farm, only about 20 head, just small. Um, ducks, chickens, you know, sheep randomly, but they're a bit high maintenance, you know, veggie patches, you know, 10, 15 acres for us to ride the dirt bikes as well too. So... Uh, the funny thing is we would hand rear the calves. So the first calves, my old man's the youngest of six and he's got five sisters. So the first calves that we got, we named after my auntie. So they're Auntie Pauline, <laughs> Auntie <laughs> like Auntie Pat. So we raised these five calves and then we took them to market and we got them all processed and they're all in the freezer. And so the running joke at home was we'd sit down and they're all labelled and so we'd be like we'd be eating Auntie Elaine's, you know, roast rump of beef or we'd be be eating Auntie Pauline's, you know, also Bucco or their iPhone. So if we had that, then we'd invite the auntie around and would actually eat their sort of namesake. It was quite funny. So, so, so absolutely. I love that. I love, I love the thought of that. Um, I, I, I may have taught my daughter when she was very little to call all lambs lunch. Yeah. <laughs> um, um, so you know, similar. Sim, I, I, I think it's. I think it's. It's. It's good to have some fun. It's not just about food, though. Therefore, is it? I mean, the, no. the, the, there's an a sense of occasion. There's a sense of community that builds up around food, isn't there? Yeah, there is. There is, and especially 
in the restaurants, I mean, in the early days, I was completely focused on food and I probably was until maybe five or six years ago, really, maybe a little bit longer. I started to understand the whole experience from a restaurateur's um, kind of point of view, from a front of house, but more importantly, from a customer experience and what it means to go to a restaurant and to walk the customer's path and, and, and to understand the entirety of it. And I think that comes with a bit of age, a bit of maturity and not just you know, solely being focused on the beef or on the fish or on the food and the plate. You know, the food's an important part of a restaurant, of course, and we're, we're a chef-driven business. Uh, but it's the overall experience that really, really matters. It's from the moment that you walk in the door. Um, it's how you greet it. It's, it's the booking process. It's when you, you know, call someone to make your reservation all the way through to when you leave and then someone saying thank you and, and, and you know, good night and hope to see you again. It's not just about you know, sitting down and having my entree main dessert or actually sitting down and having my seven course tasting menu. And it's very simple. We try and keep our business model very simple. It's about good hospitality. It's about doing all the little things really, really well. It's about uh, smiling. It's about, you know, saying thank you. It's about being polite to guests. It's about being, uh, being warm and accommodating, all these things that go through because the food should be good. Right, we're you know we're chefs. I'm a cook. You know, I, I've been cooking 30 years. If the food's not good now, then I should give this game away. So that's already a box ticked. It's everything else that we really try to work on in in the restaurants to make them a great experience. So I'm really interested in the thought of you as a learner and and the the learning journey. But I just want to pause for a moment. I want to pick up on something that you've just talked about because we talk about the character of learning and we talk about the character of a person and we might take a term like hospitality um, uh, or, or we might take a term like belonging yeah. or we might take a term like organisation and then we might try and break it down into its constituent parts and then talk about how we might promote learning with it. I was with a, with a, with a wonderful school in, uh, in, in Melbourne, St Catherine's Turak yesterday, working with staff all around this notion of, of, a learning, of a learning cycle. How is it that in your restaurants and in your workplace that you can help people to break down the notion of what hospitality feels like and what good hospitality feels like and then promote that experience for the customer? Look, ultimately, I think it's all about culture. It's about leading from the front. It's about employing the right people, training the right people, having them buy into what your dream is. And, and I'm very fortunate. I get, to, I get to actually live my dream every day. It was always my dream as a young man to have my own restaurant, and now I've got several. And I don't take that for granted one day of my life. And it's about it being fun as well, too. It's about enjoying the fact that you're cooking a beautiful piece of fish, that you've got a full restaurant, uh, people are there for you, for a great experience. You know, sometimes it's a special occasion. Yeah, sometimes it's a catch-up with friends. Sometimes it's just dinner because I want a little treat or because I don't want to cook myself. And so for me, if I think about the organisational point of that, that's actually very simple for us because mise en place or basic preparation is what we're trained to do. That's what we do in the kitchen every day. So we do our mise en place, you know, during the day. It's funny, I like I, like I was a young man and, and my mother asked why I was working all these hours and then what do I do all day, right? Like, you know, people don't arrive at the restaurant till 6 o'clock. Why am I starting at 9 o'clock in the morning or 10 or 11 or 12? And I had to explain to her that we don't just get an order in and we make the puree or we portion the fish. So there's all this basic mise en place, this organisation that goes into um, 
um, actually getting it ready so that when the docker comes through, so that when the check arrives, that we've got our base stuff there and we're then ready to cook it. So, so there's, a, there's a big process thing there, mm. which starts with a basic training piece. And we're going to explore your training um, yeah. uh, in a moment. And then there's the mise en place and, the, and then the organisation of the restaurant as yeah. a whole. Yep. And you talk about culture. Culture is the way we do things here. It's, yep. that, it's that understanding that, you know, in your context, when someone comes in the door, this is what happens. And then this happens and then this happens and we do this this way and this way and this way and so on and so on and so on. Even though restaurants are crazy environments, they're actually very structured behind the scenes. Absolutely. Like they're very, very structured as to exactly as you said, Phil, as you come in, you're greeted, we'll check the table, we'll check the booking number, we'll check your dietaries, we'll check your name. You know, this day and age, we check your double vax, we check everything to go through, you know, to take you to get you to that arrival point of, of actually being seated and then the process and the structure works through. So an inherent part of culture for you then is attention to detail, isn't it? Oh, 100%. 100%. It's all the little things. For me, it's the one percenters that really separate us from the rest. Everybody can cook a good piece of meat. Um, everybody can, you know, be warm and friendly when you arrive. But what do we do differently that actually separates us, that makes us, you know, fucking great restaurateurs or great cooks or like a great experience. And it's that one, two, three percent. And whether it's in a kitchen or front of house or in a sporting team, they're the really, really difficult things because everybody can get to a level, but actually pushing yourself past that level day in, day out. I mean, a few people could do it uh, daily, weekly, but to do it lunch and dinner every day with every table, with every piece of fish that you cook, every piece of beef that you cook is extremely difficult. Okay, so I want to pick up with two things there. The first thing I want to pick up is about that standard of excellence that you just mentioned there, because yep. that's it's that that's not near enough is good enough. That's not oh we'll, we'll, we'll kind of get there. That's every piece of fish. Yeah, that's every piece yep. of beef. That's every single serve of those delicious um, beef tendons with a faux bacon yeah, on top. Yeah, it's just yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But it's the attention to detail that goes through that, and that's extremely difficult. But that's a self-imposed standard, right? For me now, like I might impose that on the staff or I might expect that from the staff. But, you know, that's your personal standard. That's your personal brand. Every time I fillet a fish, I try and do it better than the last one that I filleted. And I try and hit, like if the weight is 150 grams, I try and hit 150 grams. And it's a cleaner portion and it's a better portion and it's, and it's a better shape and it's closer and it's on the money and there's less trim and same as beef. Every time I do something, I try to do it better than the last time that I did it. And I filled it a lot of fish in 30 years. So that's a hard thing to do, but I don't take any one piece of fish or meat or vegetable for granted. I always try to go, right. So how can I make this the best plate of food that I've ever cooked? Okay. So that's standard of excellence. Again, I'm breaking this sort of thing down here because this is what I do for a living. Um, and this, this, I, I'm living the dream as well too. I didn't realise this was my dream until I was 18 and found myself in a classroom and then just found I just just had to teach and I yep. just, just love that. And these days I mostly teach adults rather than teach kids. But listening to you talk about excellence, excellence is about a self-imposed standard. Yes. There's knowledge and expertise and experience that's built up over time. It's passed on to others as an expectation and implicit within that is the idea that you just got to keep doing better and take nothing for granted, which is about which is about continuous learning, isn't it? And unlearning and continuous yeah, yeah, improvement. Yeah, exactly. And then I think also questioning what you do too. I mean, food 
has changed a lot in 30 years. You know, cooking techniques, cooking methods has changed a lot in 30 years. Diners' expectations changed a lot. So how do you remain current and keep moving forward and actually dealing with your own mindset? This is one of the big ones where we question what we do. And quite often when we're trained to do something, it's training through repetition. And then we're trained to do that. And then we just do it. Bang, 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 bang. But that doesn't always mean that it's the best way to do it or there's not a new technique or there's, or what is that evolution? And how do we get better and how do, how do we keep kind of questioning what we do? And that's probably really one of the hardest things because you're trained and kitchens, you're like soldiers, you're in, there's a class system, it's a brigade, you have commie chefs, you have chef de parties, you have, you know, there's sous chefs, there's a structure, there's a hierarchy. And trying to and training someone like something for so long, and then maybe I've been trained and I've been doing that for 10 years to then break my mentality, go, well, actually, even though I thought that was the best way to cook a piece of beef or to actually portion something or to prepare something, and now I'm being told it's not, there's a better way. That goes against the grain of your training. So it's very difficult to then do that. Then you've got to question yourself, go through, you've got to have a rational conversation, you know, verbally and personally, and then you've got to make the correct decision. Who does the training of folk in the attention to detail? So let's say there's 150 details. Who records all that? Who writes it all down? Who trains people in all those details and expectation? Well, over the years now, we have like we have SOPs, which is standard, which is standard operating procedure. So when you come on board, front of house, back of house, you'll be trained through, um, you know, the sequence of service. And that's basically your direct manager in the kitchen. It'll be the chef and the sous chef. And then you'll be shown tasks as a younger cook. And then a lot of ours is on the job learning, on the job training too. You're in the environment and you might shadow someone on the floor. You might be trained. You might have some experience, but then we will mould you into our way of doing things or our words or how, um, or how we talk to things, our language of what really makes us us. And again, I try and strip everything back because it's a very complicated world, world out there. And I'm like... All I aim to do each day is do the basics very, very well. And if we hit the basics, then the rest flows from there. So that's be hospitable, which a lot of restaurateurs, a lot of chefs, a lot of environments are. Uh, smile, be thankful, you know, be nice, be accommodating, um, you know, be disciplined in what you do if you're in the kitchen but on the floor, you know, think about how you're going to do things. And all those things then, if we do the basics well, if we, if we buy a great piece of meat, and we season it perfectly and we cook it perfectly, well, then we're two thirds there. You know, the rest is about the construction of the dish, the sauce, the garnish, the balance. I mean, that comes with time. That comes from the senior boys to actually bring that down. And it's the same as the front of house. If you're warm, if you're welcoming, if you're in a clean uniform, if you smile, if you don't look like a grumpy waiter that doesn't really want to be there, it's body language, it's how you sound, it's how you communicate. If we do all the simple things really, really well, then the rest of it flows, you know. Then we think about the music, about the ambiance, about the lighting, about the plateware. And then ultimately we need to have fun, right? If you don't enjoy what you're doing, then normally you won't actually do a very good job at it because you don't really want to do it. And therefore it becomes a chore. It's always going to be work. But if you can enjoy your work and really buy into it and let yourself go, almost pull the ripcord and fall into it, it becomes much easier it doesn't become work, especially when you're cooking. It's pleasurable. To what extent do you think that fun that you're talking about there is a decision 
that you make yourself, that, that buying into it. Is, is, is that a you thing or is that a culture thing? Is that other people dragging you along? And, I, think you that's a, I think it's a mix of all of them, actually. I mean, there's time for fun, and I don't mean laughing jokes all the time. If we're in a serious service, we're in a serious service. But there's times that you can enjoy it, that you can have a little bit of banter with the team, you can have a joke, you can, um, you know, you can enjoy, you know, doing what you're doing. Like, and chefs look at different things to be fun and different chefs look at things as a challenge as well too. You might have a huge amount of work to do and some people go, oh, I've got so much to do this, this, whereas others go, wow, I've got so fucking much to do today. I actually can't wait to hit these, you know, 20 salmon and fillet them as fast and as clean as I do. So they see it's a challenge and then they step up to it, you know. So, yeah, that fun is inside yourself, but it's also the people around you. And, the, and I think it's about the camaraderie that's in your kitchen. And if you've got good energy and, you know, we play music during the day, you know, we sing little tunes, we sing along, which is what we're doing. And so we're serious, but I try and find that fine line between being so serious that it's painful and so relaxed that you're actually not focused on what you're doing. But that changes, that changes for us, like, actually kind of throughout the day. So I'm, I, I really want to get on and talk about 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 how you learned all this sort of stuff. But you keep raising things that I keep wanting wanting you to yeah. talk about. And there's a very serious thing I want to talk about, which is is the fun and the banter versus poor culture in yeah. in a workplace. Yeah. And we've become increasingly aware over the last ten years, I guess, of and for for people like you and me, you we 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 hear phrases like toxic masculinity. We talk about you know, um, unhealthy work cultures and, and that sort of thing. How do we maintain fun? How do we maintain a sense of humour? Um, how, how, how do we bounce people along um, and, and get, get that sense of excitement and momentum and energy going um, and do it in a manner that's actually respectful towards people? Yeah, look, it's a very, very fine line, to be honest with you. I mean, the culture in kitchens, the way that you know, that I was trained and brought up. I started cooking in 1989. You know, the 90s were very different to how the kitchens are now. You know, they were brutal environments. There was banter, but there was physicality. There was, you know, different forms of abuse, I suppose you could say, if you were, whether that was, um, you know, verbal, mental, physical, um, you know, the language used, everything like that, the culture. It was a very, very different time. And that's something that I've really worked on for myself because it's, you know, that was ingrained in me. It's like, you know, that's how I was trained. It's like, like, you know, you kick a dog and it barks and then you keep going and then you train your dog to do this and then all of a sudden, 10 or 15 years later, you say, you can't do that. You know, that's not right. And I'm not saying that's right or it's wrong, but you need to evolve. You need to look at it. So that's something that I've identified in myself that I need to remain current, that I need to move forward, that I need to change, you know, certain behaviours that I've had or certain things that you say or do that, uh, maybe 25 years ago were acceptable, but these days they're not. And there's a different generation coming through that have different wants, different needs. You know, the internet changed everything really, the late 90s, early 2000s, there's different exposure. Now it's more about sharing. When I started to cook, and I've still got both of them here actually in my top drawer, I had my little Bible that's my first recipe book from 1989 and you had to actually earn a recipe. You actually had to, like I had to cook it three times to earn the right to write that recipe down to reproduce it. Mm. Right? So it was very insular in knowledge, in what I do, in what I know. You, you know, you had to do the hard yards to share it. And the only two ways that you could really learn things was to go into someone's kitchen 
and do the hard yards or to buy a cookbook. There was nothing in between or dining or dining in the actual restaurant. There was no other way to actually learn. Now, 25, 30 years on, you know, you can Google verification, you could Google sous vide cooking, it's there, there's YouTube videos, there's demos, you know, there's demos. So it's completely done a 180 where now it's about sharing information. And that's why I think the hospitality and the food scene has evolved so much in the last 10 or 15 years because there's, there's this sharing of knowledge. It's not kept inside yourself. Oh, well, I've got the best chocolate tart. I'm not sharing that recipe with anyone. Um, now it's like, well, this is the best chocolate tart. And then 100 people make it. And then they do little tweaks and they do little tweaks and it evolves. And it's evolved at a very, very fast rate. And that's not just the food, but that's also the culture in kitchens, in environments. Absolutely. In generational shift, you know. And, 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 and the funny thing is, and I think we've, we've learned this from the internet, is that sharing your IP actually yeah. increases your take in the end 100 you know guarding small. guarding onto it i mean it's, it's I, again I, I won't i won't comment directly on you because i'll embarrass you but if i talk about another another little melbourne foodie uh institution i i, I love talking about melbourne foodie stuff because i'm a sydney sider i'm an only a recent immigrant to the people's democratic republic of fitzroy so yeah. i'm still discovering all sorts of things but um you know the 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 folks at 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 beatrix the cake shop you know and they put their, their stuff out their recipes out and they've still got bloody 100 people outside their, yeah, their, yeah. their little cafe every day lining up to make exactly the same thing that they could be making at home and they probably do make it home themselves and then they go and buy more and more and, and more they and go more and buy it and there's until a buying, friend. and there's a sharing of information there it's not something that you cling on to anymore it's something that you share and then, you know, the chefs and your team are then growing. They're growing better. Everyone's having new ideas, new techniques. That's it. You know, and they've got different angles and they've got different experiences. So that's been something that's really, really Absolutely. Crazy. So so what I, what I propose to you is that that's not just food as a movement. That's learning as a yes. movement. That's, oh, com that's community learning as a, yep. as a community learning and growing as a, as, a, as a movement. Scott, can you tell me about how you go from being a boy... Um, who's barracking for the bombers and eating massively delightful, dirty sausages from Queen Vic Markets, yeah. um, eating in your family kitchen and dining room to doing your apprenticeship and then starting in, in restaurants. Tell me about that story. Yeah, so look, I wanted to uh, say for my first car, I was 14, you get your licence or you learn this in South Australia at 16, your peas in those days at 16 and six months. So I wanted to say for a first car, and like most young men, I wanted to travel from the city. Uh, I, I wanted to travel from the country down to the city and visit my mates and you know chase girls and go to the beach and go out and all that kind of stuff. So uh, being up in the hills, I needed a bit of transportation. So I did work experience in year 10 at, at, at the local winery. And I remember that I walked into a room about three metres square and it was full of pots and pans, dirty and plates and then saved it that saved me about seven hours of like of pot scrubbing. I thought it was a bit of a joke. So I got in there and I scrubbed all the pots. And then as soon as I got the pots and, and, and the dishes done, I could move to the main kitchen. And this kind of happened, this is a rite of passage, I suppose, over three, six, nine months. The deal was, you know, once I finished the dishes, then I could move into the kitchen. So the faster I moved, the more food I could see. And from the moment that I stepped into a kitchen, I found my stainless steel asylum, I like to call it in those days, because chefs were hidden in the back, you know, they were brutal places. But I felt at home. I felt a camaraderie and energy 
inspiration that I really, really loved. And it's all that I've ever done. I've never worked in any other industry aside in hospitality. I've spent my life in kitchens around the world and in my own kitchens and now developing and growing the business. And, and I just, it was fun. I love the energy. I love the excitement. I love tasting. I love learning new recipes. I love being shown. I love being trained. And there was so much in the early days and even now in different ways of being that sponge and just absorbing as much information and as much stuff as I could. Were you, so, liked that at, were you liked that at school? Yeah, I was, I was. I mean, I love school. I love school. I, so I'm a, I, I'm a December baby and I never did year nine. So I went from Melbourne where I was in year eight and then we arrived in Adelaide and they said, okay, you're going into year nine. And I argued with the principal. I've always been quite outspoken. And I said, well, mate, I don't think I'm in year nine now. And he said, why is that? I said, well, um, if I was Melbourne, I'd be going to third year of high school. Let's actually just forget the numbers. Yep, let's think about the systems, right? So if I'm going into high school in Melbourne, in like in my third year of high school, uh, because in Adelaide, you do year seven up to in primary, then high school starts in eight. I said, well, eight, nine, 10. Exactly. And born, yeah. And I'm born on the cusp because I'm December. If I was six months early, then, then we wouldn't be having this conversation. And he looked at me and there was a little bit of argy-bargy. And I said, look, I think I should be going into year 10. Otherwise, I'm going to be the eldest in year nine by a couple of months, like a year on some, but I'd rather be the youngest learning in year 10. And he said, son, if you get straight A's and do well for your first term, then you can stay in year 10. So I got straight A's and we never had that conversation again. So that, <laughs> um, that kind of fast-tracked because it was a, like, like a like a kid that was born at the end of the year, like I wouldn't have done, like I wouldn't have done work experience in year nine. So I would have been a year behind. I would have been 15, almost 16 by the time I did it, you know, rather than 14, almost 15. So it kind of changed, you know, that kind of, um, you know, that learning and, and, and that growth for me. And then when I wanted to start my apprenticeship, I'd, like I'd finished year 11. And look, I excelled at school. I found it really easy. Plus I enjoyed school. I enjoyed learning. I enjoyed maths. I enjoyed legal. I enjoyed economics. You know, I never really had to study too much. It kind of came to me naturally. So I skipped a year of school, went through. And then at the end of year 11, I like I was offered my first apprenticeship and my parents said to me, okay, well, you know, we thought you'd go on and study law or economics or business or something. And I said, well, look, that's always what I wanted to do until I found a kitchen. So then we made an agreement that, you know, because I was a year ahead from where we planned on when we were being in South Australia, that I'd do the first year like of my apprenticeship and either I'd love it and I'd continue or I wouldn't like it and I'd go back to school. I'd be the same year that I would have been if we had a state in Melbourne, but I'd have a year's life experience, a real world experience. And the one deal that I made with my mother um, and I still... I still remember this conversation and she said, I don't mind what you do, but all I ask for you is regardless, you know, whether you're a chef, you're a lawyer, you're a gardener, you know, you're a farmer, you just do the best job that you can at whatever you choose to do. And that was a deal. And this is, you know, 30 years ago. And I still remember that conversation and that deal and that promise that I made her. It doesn't matter what you do. She's like, as long as you try your best, and do your best at your chosen career and you enjoy your life and you have fun, then we'll always love you and you'll always be successful. And it's, I think it's, that's it's, very it's, basic it's, rules. It's, it's basic rules, aren't they? Do what yeah. you enjoy and do what you're good yeah. at doing. Yeah. You know, you know, and what, do it well. 
and, and, and then do it well and then learn that today's well is not good enough for tomorrow. But whatever yeah. you're doing tomorrow has got to be better than what you do today because yeah. that's the way the world is. It's, um, yeah. uh, you know, and that's, that's, that's the challenge of adaptive expertise, isn't it? And self-efficacy. Yeah, 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 you just yeah, got completely. to keep organising yourself, just got to keep getting better and better and better. So, so you, you, you launch in your apprenticeship. Where, where, where did you do your apprenticeship? Where, where, how, how did that all work? So I split it through the winery, the vineyard that I was at, then actually went broke. The owners there were Austrians. They had some good friends that had a restaurant in in the city in Kensington in, in Adelaide, a great chef by the name of Peter Jama. And PJ was Austrian, old school, you know, worked in Germany. Like, I mean, I still keep in contact with PJ now and his early 80s. So if you think about that, PJ was born, you know, 1940s, late or maybe 35, he was actually trained by hard school, old school boys that were straight out of the Second World War, right? You know yeah. what I mean? He started his apprenticeship in 1950, yeah. right? Yeah. So maybe, maybe 48, 49. So he's trained in an Austrian German mentality where it was very disciplined. It was uh, that's where my chopping board goes. That's where my knife goes. That's where my spoons go. There is no deviation. Two and three star kind of level. And he was the first chef to really take fine dining to Adelaide. So I had two years with Peter um, and his son's a chef and, you know, family business completely. And then the, then his sous chef, a guy by the name of Andrew Summers, that's now the head of Le Cordon Bleu in Adelaide, at, like a Regency Park where I did my training at, at a great school there, then went to a restaurant called The Slope Inn Inn that's in McLaren Vale that's only about 15 minutes from where our family farm was. Okay. So I actually moved down and did the third and fourth year of my my apprenticeship with Pete, um, with Andrew, and that was very different. We were cooking, you know, Asian food. It was kind of, it was a blend. It was mixed. It was all different cultures in a beautiful country sort of setting, a wonderful environment, and it was close to home. So they were very different cooks and attacked things from very different perspectives, but great training and great understanding. And during that time, Peter was always big into competition. So he always pushed me as a young man to enter competitions. So in my first year and my third year, I entered because in Adelaide, they were every two years, the Salon Culinaire. And I trained and Peter trained me and went through competitions and training and tips. And then and actually won Apprentice of the Year twice and all these gold medals and then won the competitions. And there was Apprentice Team Cuisine and a chef and an apprentice. And we cleaned up both years. And a judge both of those years was a gentleman by the name of Bruno Sedan that was the executive chef of the Windsor in Melbourne at the time when the Grand Dining Room was going. So, you know, Bruno had seen me like over a three or four year period and he knew that I was finishing my apprenticeship and he came up to me the last time and he said, if you ever come to Melbourne, then look me up and look, I'd love to give you a job. So I finished my apprenticeship about six months later and I sent Peter off like a resume and, and, and I sent Bruno off a letter and a stuff to the Windsor. And then he called me back and I got a job. And so I moved from Adelaide to Melbourne to work at a five-star hotel in the Grand Dining Room with a massive brigade under a wonderful French cook. And that's really kind of when I moved back to Melbourne, sort of 18, 19. Scott, I think we're going to pick the story up next time because I think we've we've wandered we've wandered off the the the, the path a little bit. Well, one final question for for I'm us. I'm to do that, Phil. No, nah, that's all right, mate. I'm I'm exactly the same. Just ask my students. I will just go all over the place. Uh, I've got one one last question for you, and then we'll pick the story up next week. 
you trained under some people who had superb attention to detail and a real picture of excellence and great experience around it. Do you, if 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 you can remember what you were like as a as a as a teenager, did you have that standard of excellence in your mind or in in your heart, or did you learn that from others around you? I think it's a mix of both. I think it was inside me, and I think it was there. And I think the you know the chefs and the people around me could see that, but I also think it was training and how I was shown and the discipline. And look, I was a pretty wild young man. I don't make no bones about it. I went from being a child to a man at 16, 17, 18. You know, we went out a lot. You know, the hospitality industry was wild. So we were crazy and wild and we had lots of fun. But it was still when you put your jacket on, there was that training. So I think it was actually training and taught. But it was also a standard that I could see blossom and grow inside myself to where that became my personal standard. Excellent. I reckon that's a really good point to finish um, this week. Thanks, Scott. Really appreciate the conversation so far. And I'm looking forward to next week. Yeah, cheers. Thanks, Phil. Game Changers is a podcast for those who want to change the game of school. Produced by Oliver Cummins for Orbital Productions and powered by a school for tomorrow, Game Changers is available on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play and SoundCloud. Tell your friends and don't forget to subscribe. Let's go.